Well, good morning. Um, if I'm a little echoey, I'm sorry. I'm sure Thomas will take care of that. I can't tell. I can't hear myself talk right now, so there's that. Uh, if you would open your Bibles to Genesis 37, I want to ask you some questions for you to consider while you're on your way there. Genesis 37. When events like this past Tuesday happen in our country, what is your heart's reaction? Is it weeping for the loss of precious life? Life that has not even started? Life that is being taught? Does it rejoice in the stopping of such a senseless act? Does it languish about looking for reason? Why does this happen? Do you ask this question, where was God in this thoughtless evil? No doubt we have all different sorts of reactions to injustice in our world, but here's one thing for sure, we react to injustice in our world. We don't know why it happens, except for that we understand that all man is fallen, all man is evil. The heart is wicked above all else. Who can know it? And no doubt we try to reason our way through these trials and these storms of life. Whether to comfort ourselves or others or just simply make sense of the thing, it might be impossible to do so. But we all look for someone to right those wrongs and right those tragedies. See, Joseph, Moses, David, Daniel, Jesus, they all have gone through the worst kinds of trials. Senseless acts done to them, senseless acts done around them. But they all endured in faith. And every man except for Jesus sinned in the middle of those trials. Let's get this straight. Jesus is the only sinless, perfect man. Even Joseph, the character that we are going to see in this, is not sinless. Jesus is. But they did endure their trials, although not perfectly. And I would take a shot at as to why they are not sinless, and Jesus is, other than the fact that he's son of God and cannot sin, uh, that Jesus knows everything. He understands why he's there. He knows what's ahead of him. He knows what's behind him. Every other one of these men do not know what is coming next. And so they seek to take it in their own hands. They seek to understand it on their own terms. In reality, they cannot know anything beyond what their eyes show them and what their heart feels. So we're going to go to the Lord in prayer. And something we've been trying to start here is a pastoral prayer, one where we intercede, we as a congregation intercede for one another, for the churches in our area, for the churches abroad, for missions work, so that hearts might be changed, that we might be able to join with them in spreading the gospel and the good news. So would you join me in prayer? Today we see Genesis 37, and we come to it understanding a couple things, and I, I want to just, before I get there, I'm starting in Genesis, 30, Genesis 37 because I'm bringing us to a place where 
uh, we're kind of balancing one another out. So Johnny's preaching in, in the New Testament. I'm going to be preaching in the Old Testament until Genesis 50 ends. And we're going to be balancing one another out from here forward for a while. Uh, as long as it takes to preach 13 chapters, which for me could be a while. Uh, so there's that. Um, but a lot of this has to do with the fact that I, I actually was wondering, what am I going to preach on? Johnny had told me about a month ago, hey, be ready. Or no, he told me three months ago at this point, be ready, you're preaching on Memorial Day. Um, and I was like, I don't know what I'm going to preach on. Who knows what I'm going to preach on? And then last week I, I realized, well, the one thing that been, I've been hung up on is the story of Joseph. The, the, the trials that Joseph has endured. And then, what, lo and behold, what Tuesday happens. And here I do, I find myself in the pit of despair on Wednesday morning after my brother tells me, you know, Tuesday night we're having dinner, and he's like, hey, did you hear? And I said, no. And he tells me, and I'm like, well, what? That's a great way to start a family dinner, isn't it? No worries. But I, I broke that morning. I broke Wednesday morning. And I realized that the pit of despair that we all feel when we see senseless evil happening around us is something that Joseph himself experienced at the hands of his brothers. Joseph's not a perfect man, although he's, pretty, he's portrayed as righteous pretty much the entirety of his story. But this story is not about Joseph alone, it's about his brothers. It's about how they are wicked and they display the wickedness that their father has had before them and his father before him and his father before him and the bringing of all that wickedness to a head. So, Genesis 37. I'm going to read it out loud and you guys can be seated still because I realize that it's 36 verses. But I want you to listen and follow along with me as we go, starting in verse 2. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he was the son of his, own, his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all of his brothers, they hated him, and they could not speak peaceably to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we, are, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. And his brothers said to him, are you indeed to reign over us? Are you indeed to rule over us? And so they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream, and behold, it, he told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars are bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him. And said to him, what is this dream you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him. And his father kept, but his father kept the saying in mind. Now his brothers went to the pasture, their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? 
Come, I will send you to them. And, he's, and he said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now and see if it is well, see if it is peaceful with your brothers and with the flock and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron and came to Shechem and a man found him wandering in the fields and the man asked him, What are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where are they pasturing the flock? And the man said, they have gone away. For I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. Not where Johnny is. So Joseph went to his brothers and they found him at Dothan. They saw him far away. And before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. And they said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him. And we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard of it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to him, Shed no blood. Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness. But do not lay a hand on him, that that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore. And they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty and there was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh. And on their way, carrying it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let our hand not and not, let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then the Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. And when Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it, saying, This, it is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph, who is without a doubt, torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him into Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. Now, this is a huge amount of text and a ton of things that we could be pulling on. And one of my favorite things to do is when I get to teach the Bible is to pull at strings of the text that connect to other places in the text. But I'm going to try and refrain from doing all of that because we would be here for four hours. But I do want to point out a couple things. From the very beginning, we see that this is not Joseph's story alone. It says this in verse 2. These are the generations 
of Jacob. Of Jacob. Not Joseph. Jacob. So Joseph's story is a subset of Jacob's story. That's what this is saying. Anytime you see the generations of in Genesis, he's about to um, start another um, episode or another narrative of how we are to, uh, like, kind of like the heading of that narrative. These are the generations of, and then Abraham. These are the generations of. And so now we've got a, these are the generations of Jacob. Notice it can't be about Joseph himself because the Lord himself actually calls the patriarchs, you know, Joseph is part of the patriarchal line, but when the Lord introduced himself, he says, I am the God of Jacob, Isaac, Abraham, Jake, Isaac, and Jacob, right? I am that God. I'm not the Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Bilhah, Zophah, keep going. He just does it by the three patriarchal names. And so with that being said, Jacob's story is going to be repeated in Joseph's story over and over and over. And if you know anything about Genesis, everything kind of comes to a head here in Genesis 37. All roads, no, don't, all, all roads lead to Rome, but they all lead to Joseph also in the midst of, so we're kind of coming to a choke point here where Joseph is going to pick up the mantle and carry on the narrative for us. And with that, we're given a uh, bio, a short biography of who Joseph is. He's 17, right? He's a shepherd boy. He uh, is, uh, I want to say haughty. Uh, he's, he's not exactly, you know, closed-lipped. He's not very, he's quick with his tongue. I'm, I'm sure that he had plenty of faults. But one of the things about Joseph that you may not know if you read just 37 is that he's the firstborn son of uh, uh, Jacob's favorite wife, Rachel. Okay, and so there's a lot of this favoritism that is tied up with who he's born of. Rachel was the one that Jacob went to go and uh, take as his wife initially, but he got Leah uh, by being tricked by Laban. And then, so he finally gets Rachel after 14 years of working for Laban. He finally gets, it's a long story. But the point is, is he is the favorite son of Jacob. And we're told as much in verse 3, you know, love, uh, now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. He was a miracle child, just like Isaac, right? Abraham and Sarah, Sarah couldn't have kids. Uh, and then the Lord says, hey, you're going to have a child. She's like, I'm way past that time. Uh, I don't know what you're talking about. She laughs. Isaac's name sounds like he laughs. Uh, so there's like a lot of connections here because guess what? Rachel was a barren woman also until the Lord opened her womb after having all these other children. He's number 11 of 12. So there are 10 other children, 11 other children if you count the, the, the daughter, but they're all uh, born ahead of him. And Jacob is waiting over and over and over for Rachel to conceive. And here he is given a son from her, which is like the crowning achievement at the time. And so He's a miracle child, just like Isaac is a miracle child. And this phrase, uh, the son of his old age, is the exact same phrase that is said of Isaac in Abraham's story. So we know that there's a lot of like backstory here that we're not going to be able to get into and dive into. This favoritism, though, is not just merely because Joseph tattled on his brothers. Notice the bad, the bad report. It's not merely because of that. It's a lot more dynamic. 
So, but because he's the favorite, he's given a robe, right? The robe of many colors. You guys have, have anybody seen the Technicolor Dreamcoat, that, that play? I've never seen it. Admission, I'm sorry. Uh, but I'm also not sorry because it doesn't solely my like, image of who Joseph is. So there's that. Um, sorry. Uh, the robe of many colors, though, is actually probably better rendered robe with long sleeves. And the only other place that this is said about anybody anywhere is in 2 Samuel 13 when uh, we're, we see the daughters of David and they are given royal robes. That's what it's called, royal robes. So robe of many colors, royal robes. It's the same phrase in Hebrew. And so these are, these are royal robes. He's making them stand out. Not only does everybody know that he's the favorite, now everybody sees it every time they see him, right? And so the flaunting of the favoritism, I don't think this is on Joseph all the way, by the way. I think it's all more on Jacob than it is on Joseph. Um, but this robe is displaying the very favoritism in the heart of Jacob himself. So much so that the brothers hate him, right? They hate this favorite son. They can't even speak peaceably. So it's not just hidden hate. It's hate that comes out, right? It's hate that they can't even say a kind word. They can't say shalom to him. They can't say anything to him that would be kind. And at this point, we need to ask ourselves, what is Jacob doing, right? What is Jacob doing? He's setting himself up for the same kind of failures that he had in his own life, right? He was the favorite son, right, of, of, his, of his mom, not of his father. Isaac was actually favored Esau, but Isaac was told at the very beginning, the younger shall, uh, the, well, the older shall serve the younger. And so there's a, there's a problem here, like favoritism doesn't work, right? Uh, Isaac gives the blessing and the birthright, away to Jacob because Jacob has to deceive him with Esau's, the favorite son's, um, food and his clothes, right? He's got to figure out that favoritism isn't the way to go because what did it get him? It got him trial after trial. He had to run away, right, from Esau because Esau was going to kill him. Then he had to run away from Laban because he cheated him out of his flocks. And then he had to run away uh, back to home. And when he got back home, what happened? He was afraid Esau was going to kill him again. How, what has favoritism got him except for over and over and over and over and over and over again, trial upon trial? But he did not learn, and he did not teach his children to love their neighbor, including their brother. And so they could not even speak peaceably to them, to him. And then we come to the dreams, and the dreams are usually a big like thing, and I don't want to land on the dreams for too long, but I do want to show that the dreams are in a pair Right? And they're saying essentially the same thing, that all of creation will come to Joseph and bow down. Now, I'm bringing those two things together. They'll come to bow down, not just his 11 brothers, but all of creation, sun, moon, and stars is, uh, is a nomer for all of creation. And then the 11 stars is just putting it really, really intensely upon the brothers, saying, no, you guys are all going to all going to bow down to me at some point. And the sheaves and all these other things, uh, the sheaves are, are about provision, right? They're bowing down uh, to the other sheaf, the upright sheaf. This, this word upright is uh, used in Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 about who is righteous and who is not righteous. And so we, we, have, to, we have to see that there's more to this than what his brothers see because they just say, are you indeed to reign over us? 
Remember, they can't speak peaceably to him, so they can't think about him peaceably either. Are you indeed to rule over us? Their hate has turned into jealousy. Their hate has gotten so deep-rooted that they cannot even see that there's a possible explanation for this outside of what is here in front of them. And Joseph doesn't really offer a response. Do you notice that? He just kind of tells them, here's the dream. And they, you know, impart some, like, in some interpretation. And the crazy thing is, is they do bow down to him over and over and over when he gets elevated to the second in command of Pharaoh's house. But even his father says, shall I and your mother, notice verse uh, 10, go down to verse 10 right in the middle, it says, shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow yourselves, ourselves down to the ground before you. His mother's dead. His mother's dead. So like, there's, a, there's like a, a level of like intensity to this, this dream and how he's thinking about this dream that Rachel's dead back in uh, Genesis 35. She dies in childbirth with Benjamin. And so there's, there's some like real tension here. He's, he's seeing sun and moon and he's thinking, well, I'm the, I'm the sun and she's the moon and how are they supposed to be bound down to you at this point? There's a lot of, a lot of dysfunction in this family. Not just rained on, him, on, on uh, them by Joseph's choices, but by Jacob's choices also. And we see in verse 11 that his brothers were jealous of him. So we've hated, they've hated him for his favoritism, being favorite. They've hated him for his dreams and his words. By the way, um, I don't want to skip over that. His words, particularly of the bad report that he gave. Um, that's what they, they're not really concerned with the dream. They hate him because of the dream, but they also hate him because of the words that he spoke, the bad report that he gave of Bilhah and Zilpah's sons from the field. Now they are jealous of him. See the escalation here? Hate is just bread and bread and bread and bread, and it's just getting worse and worse and worse, and it's got to come down somewhere. So Joseph, knowing this, I mean, he can't be peaceably spoken to. He knows his brothers don't like him, and yet he does something that is extraordinary in a lot of ways. He's back home, and Jacob says, hey, go find out the shalom of your brothers. Remember, they don't have any shalom for him. Go see if it is well with your brothers. And what does he do? He just says, yes, sir, here I am. Right? He's an obedient son, even though he knows that his brothers do not love him. They do not like him. And yet, he picks up and he does what is good by them and by his father. We should stop and think about this. Is there someone that has something against you and you are prone, I mean, I'm prone, we are prone to sit here and go, I'm going to be just as ugly and as mean as they are to me. Instead of saying, here I am, send me to be gracious and look for their peace. I hope that hits you where it hit me this week. That I need to be seeking out the best for my brothers and sisters, no matter what they have planning, no matter what they have done against me. So he goes and he wanders. He wanders 50 some odd miles, by the way, through fields and dangerous territory, 
to find his brothers who hate him. And when they see him, we see how the deep that hate goes. They're looking to murder him. They're looking to put him out of their lives completely, forever. That hate and jealousy has bred them, brought them to the point where they need to bring and get rid of this person who causes them so much pain. And so they take it upon themselves. What does Jesus say about hate? If you hate in your heart, you've already done what? You've already murdered him. You've already murdered. They, they conspired against him to kill him. Jesus also tells another parable that uses this exact same phrase, they conspired. The wicked tenants, the parable of the wicked tenants in Mark. And the wicked tenants are, they're, they're so wicked that they kill and they maim the servants that come twice, the first two times. And then the third time, the vineyard owner sends his son. He says, surely, my son. They'll, they'll, they'll receive my son. They'll do what is good by my son and they'll give the, the portion to him. And what, is they, what do they do? They conspire against him. Oh, here comes the son. Now we will be rid of them forever. So they say, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him. They've already killed him in his mind. They've already committed the murder. They're already guilty of their hatred. And what do they do? When Reuben catches on to this, Reuben seems like the hero, right? He says, hey, hey, guys, shed no blood. Throw him into the pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him that he might rescue him out of their hands. Reuben is not exactly innocent here. His motives are not seen in, verse, in chapter 37, but in chapter 35, you see after Rachel dies, if you wanted to turn there really quickly, um, 35, 22, it says, Where, while Israel lived in that land after the deaths of Rachel and Isaac, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine. And Israel heard of it. So who's Bilhah? Bilhah is the servant of Rachel who was given to Joseph as a wife or as a, as a stand-in for Rachel so that he, she can give him sons. It's really complicated. Um, but this, this first step of Reuben coming and laying with Bilhah is saying, you are no longer Jacob. You are no longer relevant to this family. I am taking control over this family. And Israel, or Israel doesn't do anything about it. He just kind of lets it happen. But guess what happens? He shows the favoritism that he would be showing to Reuben, who is the firstborn, who actually had all the inheritance prior to this moment in, 30, in Genesis 35. He holds it against him. He favors Joseph, the firstborn of Rachel. He's kind of giving, getting around this whole firstborn idea and giving his favoritism, his favor to the one who has not wronged him, but who has given him the things that he wants. Bad reports. The, he's a good, good boy, I'm assuming. So Reuben is not an innocent character here. In fact, he's trying to work to get the favor back from his father, the father, the one that he lost, okay? I know I'm making a, an argument here that's not really apparent to the text, but Reuben is not a good guy. That's my whole point. None of these boys, none of them are good guys. They're not boys, they're all men. I mean, Benjamin probably at this, at this point is probably in his teens. But this is 
a long family drama at which we have to look at and go, but Reuben, didn't you in Genesis 35 do that thing that we, your father already knows about? And so what are you trying to do? You're trying to gain his favor back by bringing his son, his favorite son back to him and say, hey, those guys, they threw him in a pit. But I, I, I rescued him. I rescued him. Look what I did. Be proud of me. You don't have to work for the favor of your father. Christian in the room, you don't have to work to gain favor with God. Reuben is trying to work to gain favor with his father, and he's going to fail miserably. He says, the boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? He's already messed up. He didn't just take his concubine. Now he's lost his favorite son. He is continually and over and over and over condemned, even though he's trying to gain favor, gain authority, gain power, and he can't do such a thing. You and I have a Savior who is worth everything, and we do not need to gain his favor. He is our favor. So we do not need to shed our own blood. He has shed his for us. We do not need to throw ourselves in the pit of despair. We need to realize we've already been set upon the rock by our Father through, our son, through his Son's blood. And this is where it turns, and it gets even worse So for the brothers. The brothers have hated him, right? They have hated him again. They hate him more. They have more jealousy stored up. They've murdered him in their hearts and minds, and then they throw him in a pit, and they're so hardened against him that they sit down and have a meal. We find out later that they heard his cries and they did nothing, did nothing about his cries, did nothing to help him. They just ignored him. How heartless, how hardened do you have to be to hear your brother screaming for help and do nothing to help him? It just shows how much hate, when it takes root, gives way to murder and then nothingness, numbness about what should have been convicting to them on its face. We should not be throwing our brother into a pit. We should not even be thinking these things and yet we're so willing to just do it. And then Judah comes out and says, hey, guys, we're not going to profit from this. And I see these Ishmaelites, let's sell him. That way, his blood's not on our hands. That way, his blood, it can be actually, you know, we didn't kill him. We didn't see him killed. We're kind of absolving ourselves of the sin of murder at this point. We're trying to justify ourselves by, okay, well, we sold him into slavery, and what they do with him is, is what they do with him. Slavery is just like murder. I'm going to put the two together here. Man steal, stealing a man's wife his life from him is exactly what both are doing. One is in just selling him to another, right? Captive, making him captive and then selling him to another. The other one is actually just taking the blood upon yourself, himself. But they're both stealing the man's life. And so not only have they hated him and murdered him in the heart and committed jealousy, but now, or have been jealous, now they've actually done the thing that they said they weren't going to do and they're trying to get around the fact that it's not a big deal. 
Judah here is self-justifying. This is like a, a work of self-justification. What is Judah trying to do? He is trying to say, his blood is not on our hands. His blood does not sit on my head. His, we, we just sold him off into slavery. And yet, they know they're guilty. It, eventually, time goes on and they understand how bad it was. But they continue to find ways to get rid of Joseph and they finally get rid of Joseph and they betray their father just like he betrayed his father. Notice 31. Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered. This word slaughtered is, a, is a, a, the same word that they use when they go to slaughter a sacrifice. So they're dividing this robe, they're slaughtering this goat, rather. They're, they're making it like a sacrifice or propitiation of, um, for, for what they've done. And they took his robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in blood. And they sent the robe of many colors to their father and said, this we have found, please identify it. Remember at the beginning of this whole plan that they were hatching, they were going to say, and we'll say, a ferocious animal has come, and we'll say. And they, they were cowardly even at this point, and they just said, suggested, is this your son's robe? Please identify it. Sin has a way of hiding itself and finding ways to conceal its depth and breadth in our lives. And so we work out our trying to gain favor with the person who can absolve us, and we try to work out a way that we can get rid of this, this sin in our lives but we never look to the one who's actually taken it away. See, when he did this to Esau and Isaac, when Jacob went to Isaac and wore the goat skins, wore his, his Esau's cloak and gave him the stew, he stole something more than just the blessing. He stole Esau's livelihood his life in that moment. Esau had to make his way. And if you read about Genesis 36, Esau's descendants and how that works itself out, it ain't pretty. And Jacob is betrayed the same way. The robe of Joseph is torn and shredded and dipped in blood and then brought to the father and said, identify this. Is this your son's? And when Jacob figures this out, he goes, oh yeah, that is my son's. It's not a happy day, obviously. Everything has been taken away from him. Remember the favor that he was showing him? The favor had rooted itself so deeply that Joseph was an idol in his life at this point. Joseph was the promised son that he was going to receive. The one that's going to take the Messiah, Messiah's line, the Messianic line, to fruition, the, the one that they were going to get all the promises of God through. How did he know this? Because he had dreams like Joseph, Jake, that, like Jacob did. He had, so he had communion with God, unlike all of his other brothers. How do you know this? He understood God's promises that God would not leave or forsake them, but he would sin, uh, continue to bless the nations and all other people through the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He just thought Joseph was the next guy in the line. And now jo Joseph is dead. Joseph is gone. And the idol of his heart is revealed. 
And it's revealed in mostly in verse 35. All his sons and his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. So his favoritism was not mere, merely, I like you more. It was genuine. Those other people don't matter. And now they know it. I want to comment on this for a second. Brothers and sisters in this room, we have been given to one another. We compose a little slice of the family of God here on this earth. If you have a burden, share it. If you have a need, ask. If you have want or, or just like want to grow, please ask. Do not stand there and say, well, no one will help me. Or I don't want others to know. Let others be the comforters that they have been designed for. Let others be for you what the sons and daughters of Jacob should have been for him. A comfort knowing that the blessing of God is still in front of him. Let that be your mode. Not to shun your brothers and sisters, but to ask for help, guidance, prayer, support. Do not mourn by yourself. Do not say foolish things like, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning, when in reality, this all gets flipped on its head. He goes down to Egypt, yes, but he goes down rejoicing because his son is there. His son, his dead son that he thought was dead is no longer dead. In fact, he's so not dead that he's providing for all of the nations that would come to him to buy grain, to provide for all people, to be a blessing to all. There's, a, there's a, a level of like promise fulfillment here that we need to see. The three promises given to Abraham were land, seed, and blessing. That's probably the simplest way to say it. It'll be a given a land, Canaan. The seed, which is the seed of the woman who's going to stomp out the serpent or crush the serpent. And then blessing. You'll be a blessing to other nations. What they don't realize is that their actions are fulfilling the needs to make this happen. Why do I say that? Genesis 15, 13. It says, for the iniquity of the Amorites has not yet been complete. And before that, he says, your people will sojourn in a land not theirs, become servants in a land to people that are not theirs. For 400 years, they will be afflicted. For 400 years... They will be someone else's. And how do they have to get there? Because at this point, they've just been wandering Canaan over and over. They've gone to a couple other places. This is the moment in which God fulfills one of his main promises. This is the moment of which he puts his plan, his sovereign plan, his wise plan that could not be, could, uh, be done by Reuben, nor Judah, nor anyone else, not Joseph, not Jacob, but by God, putting Joseph in the hands of traitors, in the hands of his brothers who sold him for 20 shekels, into his, the hands of people who are death itself as a slave. See, this is where we see the choke point of Genesis ending and Exodus coming, Right? He also promises that they will have all the blessings. They will, they will reap a whole bunch of stuff. 
material wealth from Egypt, the, the people that have enslaved them. They need that wealth to go and set up camp in Canaan. They can't just leave without anything. And that's what happens. God brings Joseph to the Egyptians. He saves the Egyptians. He saves all the nations by his wisdom and by God's understanding. And then he goes and makes a way for the iniquity of the Amorites to be punished. I, say, I keep saying Amorites. The Amorites are the predecessors to the Egyptians, the people that live in that region. And so there's a whole host of things that are going on. Guess what Jacob forgot? That promise. He remembered the promise of the Messiah. He remembered the promises that he will be blessed and he'll be a blessing. But he forgot that his people were going to sojourn in a land not theirs. They were going to be vindicated and brought out from a land not theirs with great wealth by God's hand and God's hand alone. I think if you would have kept his eyes on the ultimate promise, right? The promise of, you know, the land actually becoming theirs, not just sojourning in Canaan, but actually be putting a stake in it and staying there. Um, that he probably would have reacted a little bit differently here. His idol wouldn't have been so great in his life. But that's not the point here. The point is God did exactly what needed to be done to get his people into Egypt so that he could judge Egypt and take them out of Egypt. Once again, God sovereignly works all things for his glory and our good. The trials, when they pile up among, amongst us, the trials that we cause and the trials that are given to us by God are there for our good so that our steadfastness would have full effect, that we may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Joseph becomes the model of this. He lacks nothing as second command over all of creation under Pharaoh. There's a, a level of beauty here that we cannot ignore. There's a level of goodness from the Lord's hand that we cannot ignore. And so why do we continually work for our favor with God? Why do we continually self-justify? Why do we find our way to ignore the sins that we have and to work to gain favor with the one that has already given us everything? Well, let, me, let me ask you this question. You, you may be thinking, well, I don't do that. I'd, by the way, that, that question or that saying right there is, is, a, is self-justification. So um, the irony is thick. Uh, but you may be thinking, I don't do that all the time. I, 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 I repent when I need to repent. I give of myself, and I don't do it because I want something, something in return. I don't do anything because I, I have some ulterior motive. I do it because I love Jesus, and uh, I want to be a part of Jesus' body. And examine yourself for a few seconds. You know that there's some level of escapism, some level of need to be accepted by others, that you're willing to do anything to be accepted by others. Let's not be those people. Let's find our worth in Jesus. And when we find ourselves stepping off of that path, looking for a shortcut, let's take the pilgrim way. Let us look whole into the face of Christ. Let us face what we have to face, own the sins that we have to own so that we know that they are forgiven sins. John Piper said it beautifully one time. He said, hey, 
The only sins that can be forgiven are forgiven sins. The only sins that can be defeated are forgiven sins. Your sins have been defeated. If you're dealing with a sin that's right now, it is already defeated. It's because it is forgiven. You can now work to uproot that out of your life. Do not be self-justifying. Do not find all these things, but look to Christ Jesus who has already suffered and justified you. Look to Christ Jesus who had his garment torn and scattered amongst the people that was, he was sold into, the hands of, of the Romans. Don't look to the pit that you're in, but look beyond. Look to Christ. Look to the one who has brought you already out and hides you in his perfect cleft. Let's pray.